This is Awaken to Superconsciousness, class three. Of okay. Do we have any questions from last week before we start in on this? Or, um, you know, this is a this book is a textbook on how to meditate. I'm not exactly treating it as such because we have a separate course in meditation. So I'm treating it more with some of the more supportive elements. Just, but we should never miss the point. And it's a very just a very interesting the way he's approached it. The entire focus of the book is to give us tips for meditation and also, as I said at the beginning, to inspire us to meditate. You can really take it both ways. If you are a serious meditator, it really, um, or if, even if you're just a, an, uh, a trivial meditator, <laughs> a superficial meditator, it really helps um, awaken within us this profound belief in the inner world. That's what the whole uh, practice of meditation is, is this understanding of the, the overriding importance of the inner world. It's such a, a strange um, way this world is constructed, that we have such a strong sense of the external world being the real world, and, and just such a long process to really turn this around. And the first chapter, chapter six, is really um, uh, that we're studying tonight is so particularly interesting in that way because of the way he takes the yamas and the niyamas and uh, goes on with the study we started last week and talks about how each one applies to, he, he calls it meditation or the attainment of superconsciousness, but what it really is is how to use these attitudes to deeply interiorize our consciousness. Somehow the effect of this book is to give us lots of specific ways to cut right through all the different levels of delusion and work right with the heart of what our reality is. None of us in this lifetime really have the luxury of actually living lives of external renunciation. I mean, some of you are not married or many of us have no children or we may not have uh, an excessively large number of possessions or anything like that. But nonetheless, we, in one way or another, have homes and responsibilities and financial responsibilities. We don't live the, um, the simplicity of a true renunciate's lifestyle. It's just very hard to do in this country. In fact, as the years have gone by, Swami Kriyananda has, in a very real sense, guided us away from that into a more middle, middle road. Because in America's I remember many years ago we were at a some kind of a conference. This was during the 70s, I think, when there were a lot of these group conferences, meeting of the ways and uh, various things like that. And all the different uh, leaders of the various ashrams would come together and speak. And at that time, Swamiji, uh, Swamiji's car was an army surplus car, Air Force surplus car, actually. We paid $150 for two identical cars, one to use and one to cannibalize for parts. And it still very faintly said Air Force on the side. So we always used to call it Air Force One. It was this blue Chevrolet, right, that Swami would just drive around. I don't know what year it was, but it was old when we got it. It was actually a very good car. It ran for quite a long time. Um, occasionally, he would borrow a Nandi's car, which was a VW Bug, a little green car. She might have even given him that car at one point, or else he used it from time to time. Um, but I know we were at that conference and various others of the of people in comparable position to Swamiji 
drove up in quite substantially more notable cars. I don't know if we were dealing with Cadillacs. I know we weren't dealing with any Rolls Royces, but we were dealing with more than what Swami was driving. And afterwards, shortly after, he went out and bought a brand new car. He bought a Ford or a Chevrolet or something like that, some sort of classic car that he kept for many years. But he said, in India, they would respect me for driving that car. He said, because in India, they expect those who have embraced the spiritual life to embrace nothing else. They, they honor them for being impoverished. He said, in America, if you're too poor, people think there must be something wrong with what you're doing. Because it's just not, it's not a, a mark of success to have no money or to, uh, to be able to live with no money. Um, I, I, I look at Benicia. Benicia sent me some charming thing that came through the mail, which was a, a graphic. It was called An Interview with God. And it was really lovely, beautiful photography and lovely graphics with a very nice little story. I asked God for an interview. If you have time, sir. He said, I have all the time in the world. <laughs> Um, but uh, let's see there what was the oh, the point and there was there was some there was some real wisdom in it the beginning the interviewer in this little you know it's one of these little things you watch on your screen and it plays little music and um, he said the interviewer said to God what surprises you most about mankind he said that people grow bored with childhood are in such a hurry to grow up and then long to be children again <laughs> And then among the words of wisdom were, he who is the richest who is the one who needs the least. But that's not something we see in this country so much. So in any case, Swamiji, to take back to where I am, Swamiji uh, bought this new car. And so we have to write, hit a sort of moderate level or else people will think that we don't have our act together and they won't respect our teaching. You know, we, we don't need to do more than that, but we need to show people that we can function in the material plane or else they'll think we can't function on any other plane either. And so Master himself didn't advocate poverty. He advocated simplicity. And he describes simplicity as simply having what you need and using what you have and not being owned by what you have. It, because it depends on what level of life you live at, what is really simple. If you're a photographer, you may have thousands of dollars of very expensive equipment. If you're a writer, you may have a very fine computers. If you're a musician, you may have very expensive instruments or a recording studio, things that you would not consider simple ex unless they're really the tools of your trade in your life. And then it's, it is simple to have them because that's, you, you're, you have what you need and you're using what you have. Where it gets out of hand is when either you don't have what you need because you don't have the energy to manifest it, or you um, have so much more than you need that your life is just all about everything that you own. But in the context of all of this, in, in Western society at this time, because we can't make ourselves spiritual by making it look right, we have to really do it from inside ourselves. And it's, it's a delicate art to not fool ourselves and just sort of pretend that we're really doing it because we think we are. And at the same time, we uh, don't have the security of, of looking a certain way. I recall when I first uh, stopped being a renunciate in a formal sense when I came out of the Ananda's uh, renunciate lifestyle and married David, and we had to build a house. Swamiji suggested we build a house. And it turned out to be a great uh, trauma for me to build a house. Of course, everybody's different. Um, for me, it was um, 
I'd never expected to have a house. I'd always expected to have nothing. I had looked forward to having less and less. And to suddenly have a house was very disconcerting for me. But I realized in my own heart that in, in, a, in the reverse way, I was n- defining my spirituality by my lack of material possessions. And I was afraid that if I possessed too much, I would become unspiritual. And I realized it's just a totally false definition. It's entirely and only based on our external reality. And there's no such thing. Uh, Rajasi Janakananda, St. Lynn, was a multimillionaire. He had a, a private golf course on his own lawn of his own house. He, he spent his money and enjoyed having it. He also used it generously and gave it away. It was also very simple in many things. But it, it's not what defines you, it's who you are. And he became a fully realized master. So when Swami talks in this chapter, he talks about, you know, ad, right attitude is the key to success in meditation and to success on the spiritual path. And right attitude is the consciousness you have about what you're doing. It's not what you're doing, it's the consciousness you have about it. Are you attached to it? Are you, are you made anxious by what happens? Are you looking for ego fulfillment? Are you restless? I mean, these are the attitudes. You can be a king or you can be a pauper. And you can be more attached to your uh, one little blanket in your corner of the sidewalk than a king might be to his palace. It all depends on your inner attitude, right? So the yamas and the niyamas are about right action and right attitude. And so he goes in, Swami goes into this wonderful description because the name of the chapter is Meditation is Listening. And what he's trying to show us with this, he's, he's, he was writing this book for a more popular audience, not just for devotees, and so he was also trying to cut through some of the delusions that people have. And he, he makes the point, which is a very powerful one, which is meditation is more than, it's, it's more than just about us by ourselves. We are actually relating to a reality that is there. When I teach Meditation One classes, I often say to people, you know, you have to understand that this, I'm not leading you in some fantasy visualization. It's very relaxing and it's not an invalid practice, you know, to have somebody guide you through and then you go to the meadow and then you see um, the angel of light and then you go to the waterfall and, I mean, all of those things help you because they use your imagination to put you into a relaxed state of mind. But in and of themselves, you're just tuning into a fantasy. And real meditation is not tuning into a fantasy. Real meditation is perceiving a reality that's there. And sometimes first we have to use our imagination to get in tune with it so that we can perceive it. But when we perceive it, it's there. It's more than just quieting our minds and being quiet with ourselves. It's quieting our minds sufficiently so that we can hear and perceive what's happening. And that's why he says meditation is listening. And then he takes the yamas and the niyamas and he talks about how each one of them is really the perfection of it. Is He uses the word listening, but it's just paying enough attention to what's actually going on that that's how you automatically behave. And, you know, just to review them, I know you all read them, but it was so fascinating. Nonviolence, he says, is paying enough attention, listening deeply enough to your own soul to realize that whenever you have an, a critical, a negative, and therefore a harmful impulse or thought, it's your own inner peace that's disturbed. And we don't notice that. We just randomly throw out negative ideas. We randomly argue with people. We randomly sort of feel aggrieved and put out all this violent energy and don't realize that it's ourselves we're stirring up. 
So Swamiji is saying the, the way to perfect, he's also saying the way to perfect these outward actions is through the practice of meditation because meditation makes you tuned in enough to what's really happening that you don't have to try anymore. I've, I've noticed something very interesting over the years with Swamiji. Very often when I think he's, uh, the only way I can say to put it is that he has a really good attitude about something. I realize when we discuss it that he doesn't have an attitude at all. He's just having a perception. You know, for, to, for, for one person can sort of discipline themselves to be kind and generous toward another. Oh, on a higher level, you just look and you see your own self. And kindness and generosity is just an automatic impulse as easily as you would wrap a coat around yourself. If you were cold, you would put it around someone else because you feel their cold as much as you feel your own. And that's not saying, I need to be generous. That is perceiving our unity. And so what Swami is suggesting, instead of just merely trying to practice these right attitudes, that we actually try to practice perceiving the reality behind them. That, that my state of peace is agitated when I act um, to harm in any way the people around me. And therefore, why would I do it? And that's the real freedom that we need to come to. Master said, it's not enough to be good merely because it's our habit to be good, as he put it. We have to be good because it becomes our nature to be so. That it, it, it's just not possible for us to behave differently because it, it makes no sense to us to behave differently. Um, he talks about um, non-lying, which is to say to, to give up untruth. And he has such beautiful statements. He says, the act of accepting what is, which is to, to accept wholeheartedly that which can't be avoided anyway. To be so calm in ourselves that we realize that whatever comes is just the way things are meant to be. And we don't have that need, which is the, the, the subtle form of lying, to try to make reality different, to try to resist it or resent it or even not even perceive it, but that truth is just fine with us. Because why would we be afraid of what God sends us? Why would we shrink? Why would we resist? Why would we fight it? That doesn't mean, now you have to understand, that doesn't mean we become passive in the face of it. But to work with what is, to say, well, you know, I guess I'm out of a job and I really have to go find one, doesn't mean to say, oh, I guess I'm meant to be unemployed. It just means, well, I'm out of a job, I guess I have to go find one. And we don't use any energy resenting it or being upset about it or putting over it some kind of unfair untruth. We just say, God has sent me what I need to do, so now I need to respond to it. But without having to put that overlay on it. You see the difference? Um, Non-avarice. Swami talks about this sort of pulling of our nature to try to find aggrandizement, find pleasure from things outside ourselves. And to not quest after that kind of pleasure is to, is to meditate deeply enough to feel the full satisfaction of the inner world. Because until we feel the full satisfaction of the inner world, we'll always be drawn a little bit to something. Again, that doesn't mean we become entirely passive, but to do things with detachment is very different than to do them because we're compelled to do them. And of course, these are not simple things to accomplish. Um, brahmacharya, he says, is the battle between the aspiration of the soul and the desire of energy to dissipate out into life experiences. Now, later on, when we talk about self-acceptance, he talks about how you can't 
get these attitudes just by insisting on them. Part of the part of the process of coming to these attitudes is being kind to yourself and having the peace to understand. Um, then he talks about contentment, austerity, self-study in the same ways, and devotion to the Supreme Lord. I don't need to recite every one because we've all read them. Um, then he talks in a very interesting way about the role that grace plays in self-realization, the uh, uh, upliftment of our consciousness by divine force. And Swami's answering a lot of the myths that surround yoga practice. Some people who are religious in a more traditional sense who have spoken all the time about how you know, divine consciousness comes through grace and people will actually preach that yoga is against God's law because grace is the way salvation comes. But Swamiji t- uh, confirms that entirely in a way that's very helpful for us as devotees and as meditators, which is to realize that this is a flow of energy from a higher level that comes into us. But what, what he takes it further is to say that the, the spirit of grace is like the sunlight. It's always shining. And whether we receive it in our consciousness or not depends on how closed our windows are. And the practice of yoga is a very simple one. It's just the practice of learning how to open up properly. And the yamas and the niyamas that we were talking about, the practice of nonviolence, the practice of contentment, the practice of purity, of devotion to God, of self-study, are all the methods by which we clear out the debris that keeps us from experiencing the presence of God. And when we put out the effort to keep ourselves aligned with the right vibrations, then that, that opens the space for that to come into us. We're, we're quiet enough. I, I recently was up in the San Francisco and just I went, to see, I went to see the Lily Tomlin play, which was, she's phenomenally good. It, it's ultimately not a, a spiritual experience at all, but it's really funny. And she's really, really, really talented. You know, she's the, she, she does it. It's a two-hour show completely. She's completely alone. And she plays all these different characters, men, women, all these different ages, on a stage with three chairs, a couple of steps, and a stool. And she just goes around, and she's just 150% from the first time the curtain opens till it closes. And it's just really something to see. And they have, it's beautifully done. They have these magnificent sound effects. She's just a bare stage. But she, you know, from time to time, like she pulls out an imaginary Kleenex, and you hear the Kleenex coming up. And, she, uh, there was, in one scene she was acting out this whole story about the demise of a marriage and the, the, a waterbed played a role and every so often she would like get into bed and talk to her husband and she'd lie down on this chair and every time she'd go to the chair she, they would go boop, 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 boop. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just like this whole very fast moving sort of things but every time there would be these little movements she was really something else but it was sort of in that environment in her and just in the restaurant afterwards and so on I was reminded once of a woman who came to, uh, I, maybe we, I went to see her. She was a banker, as it happened. It was just a coincidence. She was the most restless person I have ever dealt with. I, I really felt that, that maybe this woman really doesn't have a soul. I wasn't sure. I mean, everyone has a soul. But she was the most unaware of her inner nature of anybody I have ever met. She just was a, 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 an object in constant motion and constant noise. And, and you could see how exhausting it was to be her, because there was just no point of rest at the center. And so in our um, efforts on the spiritual path, 
our effort at all times is to come into a very deep appreciation of that inner nature. And no matter what we think or feel, it's always there completely for us if we listen closely enough. But it has to be this everyday effort. And, and there's also this dynamic interplay that Swami talks about elsewhere in these chapters between the superconscious and the subconscious. We can't seek that sort of inner rest because we go to a lower level of energy in which we sort of become indifferent or asleep. It has to be because that's why the word listening is such a powerful word, which is the key to this chapter. Every time we have the wrong attitude and want to do the wrong thing, wrong in the sense that it's not happiness producing or uplifting to our consciousness, it's not wrong because it's a, a, a sin and God's not going to let us in heaven. It's wrong because it puts us in hell of our own choosing. Because we're not listening to the consequences, the inner consequences of our own behavior. Do you understand? It's, like, it's not like somebody's going to do it to us. It's that we'll start down that path of revenge or anger or restlessness or fear or whatever it might be. We're not listening to what happens to us, what our soul is trying to tell us is going to happen to us. And that's where Swami's list of, of how you inwardly attune to each of these yamas and niyamas is a, a marvelous adjunct to the normal way of studying them. Because whenever we, we have a problem... I was saying this yes, uh, last time. Whenever we have a problem, uh, the highest level that we can solve it on, the better. You, you can always solve your problem in little ways. But if you can solve it by at least moving yourself toward what your final goal is. Hari Das used to call that spy dog. That was his acronym for it. Um, um, and it means solving your problems in the directions of God. <laughs> Solve your problem in the direction of God. So whatever is troubling you, instead of solving it on a small level, try to solve it by changing your inner consciousness. In the book about dying that Stephen Levine wrote, um, I think it was the book Who Dies, the first book he wrote. Maybe it wasn't a different one, but he... He talked about what happens to people when they die, the, the stages, because he's helped so many people through that process. And he talks about as the body be, begins to function less well, and this is when a person has no hope of recovering it. I, I know when my mother was uh, in the last years with Parkinson's, she was so absolutely determined, you know, it was, it was inconvenient for the people around her, but it was so laudable for her you couldn't really stop her. She was just going to hold on. Um, but because, as she herself said, every time she lost an inch, she never gained it again. Any time she lost any, any mobility or any function, she would never get it back again. And she knew it because it was a decline toward death. And she managed to die before she really became completely immobilized, which I congratulate her for. It was a good thing for her to have done. Um, but what Stephen Levine writes about is how when a person begins to die and reaches the point where their body doesn't work for them like it used to work and they can no longer change their consciousness by changing their body by moving it and taking it somewhere it's a very interesting statement because we don't even think about it like that we're sitting home and we say oh you know there's nothing much to do at home maybe I'll go to the movies okay I'll go out to the movies you know gee 
it's a little warm in here. I think I'll open a window. Maybe I'll exercise a little bit. I think I'll go downstairs and fix myself something to eat. I think I'll call someone on the phone. I think I'll take a little walk. I'll go out and work in the garden a little bit. I'll read a book. I mean, just anything like that. In all ways, we have an inner impulse, and then we run that energy through our body, and we do something about it. Correct? So now he talked about when the body ceases to respond to your will, just because it's just used up. But he said, you have the same impulses. He said, and, and you, but you, you can't get them out through your body. You're just, you're trapped, really, literally. And of course, depending on who you are and how you've lived is how difficult that moment is. But he said, for everyone, there's a period of what he described as intense restlessness, where you just, all of the energy is there to do something, but you have no way of expressing it. And so there's a great... Uh, almost panicky fight that goes on that doesn't have to last that long and then generally he said there's an acceptance just a realization of the way things are because you really have no choice and a kind of grace sets in and you relax in that but from that comes this very interesting thought that we're always solving problems of consciousness on the material level and what if we just solved problems of consciousness on the level of consciousness you see, that's what the whole spiritual path is about. And that's why, at a certain point, you simply lose interest in so many things. Because you, you no longer feel that you have to have some material release for whatever the wave is in your consciousness. Whether it's food or sexuality or ego, ego uh, ad admiration or power or distraction. It's just that the, the restless impulse arises in the mind and you solve, it, you solve it on the level of consciousness by listening more closely to the soul nature, by not allowing yourself to be dragged around by your external self. Now, in our lives, that has to be done. That's a, a, an exercise that takes place in action because of the way we work and the, what's going on with us. But still, every time those unsettled uh, states of consciousness come, Let's try to solve them on that level. Because these bodies, you know, we like so much being young and beautiful and active and all these different things, but we're, we're just, it won't last. I remember Joe's uh, aunt, Margie Conway, who's now passed away, and she was a very strong and very fine woman, and she, sent, she set a marvelous example for me once that I will never forget. We were actually on the bus going down to Southern California for one of the SRF pilgrimages. And Margie must have been in her 70s by that point, maybe not quite. I don't know how old she was when she died. But she was, um, like many women of that age, she no longer had her youthful look or figure anymore. You know, she, was, she looked approximately how old she was, and she was carrying about 25 more pounds than she'd probably carried earlier. And I just remember her once, I don't know where, what the reason was, but somehow on that trip she just made the statement, I just finally figured out that yeah, as long as I was Margie Conway, I was never going to be young, slim, and beautiful again. <laughs> she said, just like that. And it's it just like, it's true. At a certain point, if we have identified and defined ourselves by our physical body or our ability to use it in a certain way, sooner or later we just reach this point of awful conflict whether it comes on our deathbed or sooner, we just can't do it. There was a, a man who used to come to Ananda village who, well, he, he was a little pathetic. He must have been sort of a Don Juan in his youth, 
although I don't know if he was still, but he identified so deeply with being this sort of, you know, um, sexy man, but he wasn't. (laughs) (laughs) At least he was really approaching women who were approximately 30 years too young for him. Maybe he was attractive to women who were his contemporaries, but his picture was of the beautiful young things that he used to wow with his uh, masculine wiles. But it was just, uh, but what, what, what you could see was that he had made a self-definition that was so tied to his body that he was in a very difficult position when his body began to change. Now, our bodies will naturally change with age, but physical conditions will always change. And so it's just absolutely essential that we train ourselves to solve the problems of consciousness on the level of consciousness and then take whatever action is necessary, but do it out of freedom, not out of this false idea that, oh, if I just do this, I'll feel better. Because it may, in fact, be the right thing for you to do this or this or this or this. It's not that we become frozen, but that we become free in our actions. And this is where Swami says, if you listen, to your own heart and to your own soul, it'll tell you. It'll say where your real joy comes from. And then we have to also at the same time steadfastly not listen to that yammering voice of ego that's always telling us, oh no, this is what you really have to do. And then what Swami emphasizes is, if we align ourselves in that way, then the power of God comes into us. And it becomes in in an effortless way. We put out an enormous amount of effort for it to be effortless. And even those saints who apparently never practiced yoga in some part of their body must have, in some part of their consciousness, practice yoga in the sense that they listen, that they're inward in their awareness. Okay? And then Swami gives us a whole um, story about uh, the art of sitting and why we have to sit and what we have to do. And what he's talking all the way through is this um, constant struggle between the uh, upward moving energy and the downward pulling force in our lives. One of the characteristics of self-realization in yoga practice and of Christianity too is an acknowledgement that our energy goes in two directions. It's a very important thing to understand because if we don't understand that our energy goes in two directions, we don't necessarily put out the energy to resist the downward pull. We have to know that this is a battle. You know, so many spiritual allegories are about it being a battle. We have to just accept, again, this is what is. It is a battle. We have this long subconscious habit to have our energy flow downward, and we have this myth in our minds that we'll feel better if we surrender to it. Because we do feel this very unpleasant tension a lot of the time between our upward-moving aspirations and our guilt because we can't fulfill them and the habit of just wanting to just veg out, you know, just watch television and read books and have another day go by. That's just day after day after day, and tomorrow I'm going to get organized and really put out a spiritual effort, but today I think I won't. And it, it, it is a constant um, battle that we have to fight, and Swami in the next chapter especially really talks a lot about how to fight it. But knowing that it exists is very important. I was at a, I gave a seminar once. This is one of the reasons I don't talk about relationships that much anymore, but I gave an all-day seminar. This was before we came to Palo Alto when I was just, we were just traveling around and we would do what we were doing now, but as a road show in various cities. And I often would give like an all-day seminar on relationships. I'll never do that again, but I did then. 
And I, I had a group, I think it was somewhere in Texas, and it was a, a unity church or somewhere. We had a, a pretty good group, and I just gave it my little all. I just poured my little heart into this long thing, trying to really help people understand the right attitudes that are necessary, how um, primarily how much self-discipline, emotional maturity, and selfless, selflessness is required to have what you want in terms of a close relationship. But it's, it, that's, that's, all, that's what it takes. There's no free lunch. So I often wrote on the board, there's no free lunch. At the end of an entire day of just trying as hard as I could, this man said, but he said, you've never talked about that kind of love relationship that's just like falling off a log. It's so easy. And you know, I had to resist the impulse to say, have you been here this whole day? Why are you asking me this question after all these hours? But, but it was sort of like all I could think to say was because it doesn't exist. You know, on the, hum- on the human level, that, that level of freedom comes to us when we have transcended and there's no dichotomy anymore. When all of our energy is upward moving, then you have that kind of freedom. But you don't have that kind of freedom on the human plane because there's always going to be this pull. Now, that doesn't mean you suffer in disciplining yourself. That's, that's the secret he was really looking for. In fact, you see, if you listen carefully enough, you realize it's folly to do anything else. You know, why would I do something that would cause me so much misery? It no longer looks attractive to you. Um, I have a, I'm particularly blessed in the fact that I don't particularly like junk food. I never have really liked junk food. I, and a friend of mine, many years ago, she and I were on a little um, motor uh, car trip together. We took a, like a, a little journey up the coast. And because we were on holiday, we decided we could do whatever we wanted. So when we sat down for our first breakfast, because we were on holiday, she ordered a chocolate milkshake for breakfast. <laughs> now, that to me would have been a punishment to have had to have that at breakfast time. It just would, I mean, almost at any time, but it just would have made me sick. And yet to her, it was a great treat. Now, I mean, that's a very trivial thing, but very, very often, that's what it comes to. What looks like a treat, it just isn't a treat anymore because it doesn't feel like that to your inner self. You know, the freedom to get very angry at someone, which some people think is a great release of energy, it doesn't feel like that at all to you. All you can think of is how much hurt there's going to be and how much difficulty it's going to be to clean up later on. And you're not even tempted. Why would you do that? And yet other people feel very free when they get the chance to speak like that. Because there's this battle always going on we have to learn. All right. Any other comments or questions before I go into the next chapter? Dharma? Mm-hmm. At that point, just at that point when the service is about to begin, the reason why it has begun, we have this opportunity then to practice, you're saying, and to say, well, wait a minute, let me just stop for just a moment and listen. What do I really want? Not what do I think I want, not what feels good, but what do I want from like the deepest level that I can listen to at that moment, which may not be very deep, but, right. but is that what you're... You, you know, Hari does, so... Haridas is so full of aphorisms. This is, uh, he, once he, he and his wife 
his wife is a strong-minded Irish woman, and she, you know, she expresses her mind. And they were beginning to heat up a little bit. And then Hari smiled at her, and he said, I'm not caught yet, are you? <laughs> it's sort of like, I mean, it's hard to be that detached, but that's the real question. I'm not caught yet, are you caught? Has the delusion that we really want to have an argument, has it really overcome you? Or have you noticed? You know, um, David once said to me, David stores things up and then he just gets it just so, like that. You've seen him here on Sunday. Um, <laughs> at one point, he said to me, after we'd been married about nine or ten years, he said, everything is just fine and then you get upset. Okay. Now, my inclination is to say, well, it's not fine, that's why I get upset. I mean, that's what every woman in the world responds to that exact remark, right? But David said it in such a way that I knew that he was telling me the truth. I didn't quite know what it meant yet, but I knew the truth. And I really, really, really thought about it, and I realized that... Um, well, this, it, it actually goes into our next chapter, too. I was looking at him from my perspective, and he would say something that really didn't have any commitment. There was no commitment, it was just a manner of speaking. You know, different styles, male versus female, different homes that you're raised in, just a casual remark that had no real energy in it. It did not represent anything particular, it was just him speaking. And then it would cause me to react because of the fact that that's who I am, or used to be, like this. And then my reaction would then create a whole second momentum of things that would be happening. But really, everything was fine until I got upset. Do you, do you see what I mean? There was nothing really happened. It's just that it, it triggered in me a whole response. Now, that's not the same as somebody who really is out to get you, or it really has bad consciousness. But most of the time when we conflict with people, especially in close relationships, really nothing has happened until someone gets upset. You know, it's just, it's just an event. So you, you, you have to ask yourself, it's, it's, taken, it's taken me many years in my marriage to really reduce, I can't say eliminate, but reduce substantially that inclination to react when nothing has really happened. And part of it, Dharma, is just that simple thought. If I get upset about this, it's going to be three or four days of bad energy. You know? I'll get upset, I'll say things I don't want, he'll get his feelings hurt, he'll get mad at me, he'll say something that'll hurt my feelings. You know, we don't have a turbulent relationship, we never have, but we would do that like people do. But at a certain point, a few years ago, I just thought, this is just not worth it. And once it starts, I listen more carefully to my memory and to my own heart, and I, I mean, really, just two voices warring inside you. The one voice that wants to be all hot and stand up for myself, and the other voice that says, what is there to gain by this? All that's going to happen is there'll be bad energy for a while, then everything will calm down and you'll go on. Who cares? Why bother? That's not the same as never speaking up. That's not the same as, as of having righteous discussions. It's this flipping out business. Right? It applies to everything. I'm not caught yet, are you? You know, you just say it to yourself. I remember this little girl once in our school was being very, very bad, very bad. And when her teacher said, you know, what are you, what's wrong with you today? She says, well, 
there's a good angel on my right shoulder and a bad one on my left, and they're both talking to me today, and I'm just listening to the one on my left. <laughs> and that just about summed it up, didn't it? <laughs> I'm just going to really be a stinker today, because that's what I want to be. But that is, as Swami describes it beautifully, that is our, our, our ego trying to persuade us to be drawn out from the soul instead of living from within the soul. And it's partly, you know, it's the tree that I drew that first day here. It's, it's not that we cease to be part of all the branches, but if you relate to the branches from the trunk, they feel really differently than if you throw all your reality into here. I mean, in, in every circumstance in life, a little perspective balances it out. I mean, I was talking about marriage. You know, you live with someone for a long time. It's so different than people think it is. One of the reasons people have so much trouble maintaining long relationships is they don't know what they really look like. And they, they, they look just fine, and you think they don't look fine. There's, it's just such a, a different rhythm. And, and you know, sure, there's, you know, there's lots of thorns over here, but there's also this whole tree. You just, you just don't commit yourself to this. You just say, so what? And it never really changes, but it changes completely because you change your perspective on it, right? And that's true of all the things that happen in our lives. Everything is really trivial by comparison to eternity. And even if you want to fix it, the best way to fix it is with centered consciousness. And this is where the next chapter comes to where, where Swami talks about finding your own center. And he talks about this business of relating to reality from your center to the center of whatever you're dealing with. It's, it's an extraordinarily powerful idea. I was in a circumstance where I was having a very hard time communicating um, about issues that were very important and had to be communicated about. And it finally, after years, literally, of struggle, I finally did this exercise, in essence. And when the next time it had to be communicated, instead of trying to explain to them what I was thinking, I really tried to stand inside their mind and see what they were thinking. And then once I could feel what they were thinking, it was very obvious to me how to share what I was thinking. You see what I mean? It was very, it was so, it was so palpable, the difference between pushing my ideas at them and standing inside and from their inside inviting my ideas in. It, 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 it's, it's so, everything that we do, Swami says it over and over and over again, and you just have to keep meditating on it over and over and over again. Go into your own center and find the center of whatever you're relating to. He says other people, creative projects, problems, inanimate objects, everything, everything has a center. And if you, if you go into the center and feel what that center is, everything about it makes sense. I mean, it's especially powerful with people because every person has some reason for what they're doing. And every person generally has what appears to them to be a good reason for what they're doing. And, and, and people are often going someplace that you never thought about going because their karma is different. They, they're, they're trying to accomplish something different. When I started doing this exercise more, more often of going into people's center, sometimes I would realize that what looked to me like the very problem I was trying to avoid was actually their goal. <laughs> because they, start, they were starting somewhere and going somewhere else. You know, we're just different. 
Everybody's, uh, look how unique we all are. Everybody has a whole different set of karmas they're working out. And in order to unravel, that's the importance again of all these images. Swami gives us so many images that are circular because circular is the only way to understand it. And we, we have a, a, just a passion for linear. We, we sort of think of here's self-realization here and here we all are, you know, on these various tracks. And it's very much we're ahead and these people are behind and I'm here and he's there and I'm here and I want him to come here so he has to go like this to get there. And there's a tremendous amount of uh, misunderstanding. We do a lot of violence. We're not practicing ahimsa. We're not content. And we're, do- we're practicing untruthfulness. You know, we're just doing all kinds of things that we shouldn't be doing because this very image is wrong. Because what's really happening is that it's very circular. It's entirely circular. Everybody's going in toward a center of understanding and we're arrayed around like this. If not even like that, we're arrayed more like this. You know? <laughs> no. So you don't know. You don't know what's forward for anybody unless you can get into their reality and kind of sense their distance and the little trajectory they're on. And, and, and it also, this helps with all of the other qualities that uh, Swamiji was talking about of just calmness and contentment and people may appear to be going backwards but they're going in a straight line toward their goal. They're, it just might be backwards for you in the sense that it's not your root. But once you stand inside of their self, it makes a lot of sense to them. I mean, maybe you can then help them understand that in fact that isn't as straight a line as you think it is but even then you can kind of say it to them in ways that they understand. Um, I, I've, I used to play a game. You have to be careful with this game. But, you know, everybody's body looks different. Everybody's uh, way of walking is different. The tone of their voices are different. Sometimes if you don't understand someone, try to uh, stand and move like they do. I stood next to Ram. Many of you know Ram. He's a, a black man who comes and sings here every so often. He has a huge gigantic speaking and singing voice just not not he doesn't shout but he just has this enormous aura and we were at a a service at Ananda village and I found myself standing next to him once and we had to sing and I thought now this is a chance to find out something I just don't know like what does it feel like to be him and I just got as close as I could without it being too inappropriate and kind of trying to try to get into the into the sound path and I kind of stood like him and I opened my mouth big and I tried to think dark, you know. <laughs> just like everything about him and just gave myself into that. And it was, it was so um, wonderful to just really know who he is. I just understood him so much better and, could, and had all this appreciation. And, it, and I learned a little about myself too. You know, I can be more like that. I've told some of you sometimes the experience that I had with Robert when we led a, had a class together and he uh, chose and led an affirmation and he chose an affirmation that never would have occurred to me to choose and he led it in a way I never would have led it, it was very very simple I am strong I am free I am free I am strong because Robert is strong and I, I, I never thought of myself that way but I sat there right with him and I became very strong I could also see how you relate to life very differently like that so when we talk to one another, if we relate from that center, you, you, you have so much of a more expanded awareness. 
But of course you can't do that unless you're in your own center. If you're on the edge of yourself and have identified with your personality and your body and your illnesses and your age and your suffering and so on, that's just how you see everybody else. And that's, that's why people, as Swami says, it's so perfectly are so edgy. You know, they're just always edging up, edging up against each other and hitting with their sharp parts. And if you're deeply centered in yourself, you deeply connect with the center of everyone. It makes your life so much more rich and interesting. What to speak of harmonious and useful. You know, it's a, a much more interesting way to live. Meditation is a very practical benefit of that. But then Swami also talks about one of the attitudes that's required to be centered is the need for self-acceptance. And, and he, he says in this book, he said it at other times, there's no such thing as self-acceptance without a clear conscience. You, you can't accept yourself if you know inside your own heart that you're, you're not listening to your own higher nature. As Swami says, the soul call cannot be silenced. It's not society's imposition on you. It's your own nature saying, for this was I born. And we have to be, as he describes it, we have to be realistic in our expectations of ourselves. We can't force ourselves to be different than we are, but we also have to be sincere in our efforts to do what we know to be right. Otherwise, you will always be in conflict with yourself. You cannot put yourself in a lifestyle that violates your inner nature and then expect to be at peace. So, so he, he very much just simply says self-acceptance comes from, a, from a, a determined, sincere effort to move in the direction that your soul is calling you. But then you have to practice all the rest of the yamas, the niyamas. You have to not do violence to yourself. Everything works together. It's not, uh, you, you can't uh, always be, be hurting your own nature with your anger because you're not better than you are. So it's a very fine line because self-acceptance is also accepting the need to aspire and self-acceptance is the, accepting the fact that I'm not there yet. So you, work, you have to work with it both together. But Swami also says, you know, until you really come to peace with your own nature, you'll always also be inappropriately aggressive with everyone else. What we criticize in others is what we don't understand in ourselves. He said, watch what gets you all riled up. He said, whatever gets you all riled up in the world is what you're trying to expunge because you're trying to get rid of it inside yourself. And the more accepting you become of your own nature, with kindness, he adds that wonderful world. He gives us just a few attitudes. Self-acceptance, kindness. It's just a handful of things, but kindness is right up there because it's ahimsa, it's nonviolence. To, to recognize that, you know, life is very difficult. We just don't need to make it harder. We make it so much harder by also being very irate about everything that happens around us. Instead of, as we were talking about the yamas and niyamas, listening to the fact that if this is the way it is, this is the way it is. We can't just keep imposing upon it our, our false ideas. This is what life is like. And then this sort of very kind feeling comes into the heart. This is just the way it is. And when you've seen yourself try and try and try and try and fail and fail and fail and fail, you have a certain acceptance, not of the fact that you are an ultimate failure, but that this must be the way it works. You know, this is really the process. And you get a very kindly attitude when you see others. And once you're kind toward people, you can understand them. Uh, that's the same principle I was saying, is when you stand, they, they speak about it, of walking in their moccasins. You stand inside somebody else's consciousness, 
you understand that consciousness, all of a sudden you feel very kindly toward it. Because, because you perceive how it, 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 immensely sincere people are. It's just everybody wants so much to do the right thing and we torture ourselves with the inability to do it. Devi once said that she used to teach the um, yoga teacher training course at Ananda Village. She said at first she thought it was she was there to teach them about the yamas and the yamas and the Eightfold Path and all the affirmations to the yoga postures. Finally she realized she was just there to help people uh, be at peace with themselves. She said she would get a class full of what she would describe as angels, and yet none of them knew that they were. They were all nervous about their own worthiness. And she realized that their whole purpose of her course was just to get them to relax and just accept that it was just fine. You know, you're trying hard. That's enough. God himself doesn't expect more of you. You have to also realize God made you like this. He really did. And, and oh, he, he knows there's, no, there's nobody out there except you who's shouting at you to be different. But I mean, that doesn't mean to sit in your um, unfulfilled divine potential without an effort. But the effort is all that's asked of you. So Master himself said, you don't have to overcome your delusions. You just have to put out some effort to resist them. You know, don't, don't embrace them as your own. Just do your best to keep yourself free of them. That's enough. Um, and then he talks about unlearning. You have to break the self-limiting concepts that we all have. And that's, again, these are just very key attitudes to getting to the center of ourselves. We have to break the self-limiting concept. And that just starts with, I am a man, I am a woman, I am this certain age, I have to be this certain way. You know, it's, the aging process is really quite remarkable. I am very impressed by the fact that it has affected my consciousness. I, I never expected it to. I've just been always um, quite indifferent. I've had to, those of you who knew me before I married David can speak more. I mean, I was just totally indifferent to the point of where it was inappropriate. Swamiji remarks about how really things have gotten a lot better since I got married because I was an eyesore, you know. It was not just a... <laughs> but, uh, uh, still, I, watch, I look in the mirror and I see, I, I joke with, I speak to all the women, you all know this, between 45 and 50 was sort of the key period. During that period of time, I would change my outfit about four times every morning. I'd just get up, whatever I put on didn't look right. And after several years of that, I finally realized that because nothing I put on made me look 30. And that the fundamental problem was not the clothes, but the body inside of it and the face. I tried on a dress once. This was completely different. You all understand this beautiful dress in the window. It was so perfect. I put it on. It fit me perfectly. Everything looked fine up to here. But I had the wrong head for the dress. It just didn't, it just didn't go. I mean, it didn't suit me. Somebody said, well, I said, well, either I have to get that dress or get a new head. I don't really know which one. I'm reminded in that a little girl went to first grade after having been in kindergarten. And, you know, the parents, she comes home, well, what's your new teacher like? And the little girl said, pretty much like the other one, but she has a different head. (laughs) Now, where was I going with that? I've forgotten. Yes. Uh Uh-huh. 
You're accepting of the fact that you are in a process of becoming your full potential. Well, that's just a trick. Because the... Now, it depends on what exactly you're talking about. Are you talking about other people's sufferings? Are you talking about, you know, are you trying to ease the suffering of the world? What? Okay. Somebody like that. Somebody way, way out of your control. Yeah, I, I just want to change that. Well, see, you have to go back here to the point where you begin to say, let's see, what you're asking is a very complicated question, so let me think about how to answer it somewhat simply. But the reason that you want to change it is because the presence of that in your your universe creates inner anxiety in you. So it, it comes back to the fact that you have inner anxiety and that you imagine if some external condition were different, you would, you would be less anxious. So no matter what you particularly call it, that's really exactly what's happening. And then you have to ask yourself, why? And the way, I, the way I work with questions like that is, what am I really trying to accomplish? What do I think will happen? What am I really afraid of? What is really making me anxious? Now, you may end up deciding that you have a particular mission to get new laws about, you know, energy companies in the stock market. It may really be your destiny to do it. But if you're doing it because you are mentally anxious and you believe that if you can just control your universe enough, you will no longer be mentally anxious, you're falling into the classic delusion. Whether it's the way your husband deals with the garbage, or whether it's the way the President of the United States deals with the country, the issue is some external condition has made my mind anxious. If I could just get them to conform to my thought, I would feel better. That's untruth. Because you are the immortal spirit, And more than that, you set yourself up, where will it ever end? You know, because this is not a planet in which it ever gets in order. This is a planet in which we come to learn that our our joy is within us and that our happiness comes from control of our consciousness. And so this planet will always be filled with things that will irritate us. And the other thing that's really helpful is you realize that once you break that delusion and really begin to develop your inner consciousness, you actually then begin to develop the capacity to actually create the world that you desire, both for yourself and for people around you. Because consciousness is everything. And when you have power of right consciousness, you can create right consciousness in others. In the sense you can inspire right consciousness in others. And when then they have right consciousness, they have exactly what you want them to have. Once when someone was excoriating Ananda for not being ecologically active enough, and they were giving a, I mean, it was a generalized complaint, and they were giving a long story about how all the great horrible things that are going on ecologically, which, yeah, it's true. Swami finally said, look, he said, if everyone lived like us, we wouldn't have any of these problems. 
meaning if everybody meditated and if everybody understood the inner relationship of this universe and worked hard to be inwardly in tune, then your, your behavior would automatically be different. We wouldn't have the greed, we wouldn't have the carelessness. So from, from my personal point of view, you know, I feel myself to be enormously politically active even though I'm not registered to vote. Because I feel like by working to change people's consciousness, we're actually working to change the planet. Because once consciousness is different, everything is different. And you know, you can elect different people endlessly, but they really don't have fundamentally different consciousness. And they'll just all just get in and play their little game out. None of them are really very different one from another. Change consciousness, you've changed everything. Does that make sense? Okay, let's take a break. Oh, excuse me, Marilyn, did you want to ask a question? Because the ego wears an angel costume, yeah. Why don't we take a break and then we'll answer it when we come right back in. Okay. Let's take five-ish, ten minutes. It's just past 20. Why don't you be back at 10 of? What should do about the donut? <laughs> the actual question... No, I knew what you were asking. Actually, the question you're asking is, how can you tell what is consciousness expanding? And it's actually, it's not that simple a question, but it's a very important question because it's not merely that to deny oneself is, is really the way to escape from the ego. Because sometimes too much self-denial um, is, too much self-denial can cause you to become so self-involved that you actually become less free because you're so often concerned about what you might do that your thought is always one of self. So you have to realize that the first premise is self-forgetfulness. It's not so much that you're denying yourself or doing anything, you're just self-forgetful. It's just you're not worried about it. You eat the donut, you don't eat the donut, you go to movies, you don't go to the movies, you know, you meditate, you sleep, you eat, you live. You just are in a flow. You're not always saying, what about me, what about me, what about me, what about me? So the first thing you have to understand is that's the point. No, no particular behavior is right or wrong. What you want to do is you want to live in such a way that you're not always concerned about what's happening with me. Even too much preoccupation for one's own spiritual growth is not really spiritual growth. It's just self-concern. So, so you want to, the first thing you want to cultivate is a dynamically giving attitude toward life. And, it, you, it, and you also want to include yourself impersonally in that dynamic giving. Okay, you're just as worthwhile as anybody else. And, and one of the ways to discern what's right is often um, answer the question as if it was about somebody else. If your girlfriend was standing in front of you and you were going out to coffee and she said, mm, should I have the chocolate croissant? Oh, no, 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 I shouldn't. I shouldn't have the chocolate croissant. You would probably say, honey, just go ahead and have it. Just sit down with me. Let's just have a croissant. It's fine. 
you know? You look beautiful. I think you're a wonderful woman. You don't have to worry about every ounce of food that you eat. Just have the chocolate croissant. Because it's obvious when it's coming at you that this is not a spiritual attitude. This is a tense attitude. So very often, I've certainly found, one of the ways to tell whether it's right or not is I pretend that somebody else has asked me. And I generally try to think of it. I, I, this was actually a deliberate practice of mine for a long time when I was really in a very confused state. I had just gotten myself so wound up of feeling that anything that I wanted must be wrong that I started answering the question. I, I had one particular friend that I had a very easy and kind relationship with. Um, that, so that just somehow I could just understand her and I could always... I always, I always had, a, the main point is I had a very kind response to her. There was no judgment in our relationship. So whenever I felt a personal dilemma, I would always pretend that that, that particular woman had asked me the question. Because when I would just, because it was also likely that she would ask the question because she had some of the same syndromes I have. And so she would ask it and I would always answer it as if she had asked it and then it was almost always obvious. Because without the imposition of my own anxiety about my own well-being, you could see what was important and what wasn't important. So that's a very nice trick, pretend it's somebody else. Um, another understanding is, I mean, it's, a, it's sort of a cliche, but a lot of small things really don't matter and the self-preoccupation created by trying to weigh them is worse than just making any choice. So, so a lot of decisions really don't matter and they, and they actively don't matter. It's not that they passively don't matter. It's very important for them not to matter. You just have to say, you know, this is not, this is not really the stuff of which my spiritual life is made. My spiritual life is made of the ability to just live without thinking about these things. And just to do it or not do it makes less different than for me to get all anxious about it. And even if it's a very important decision, one of the ways to, one of the acts of discernment is to realize that most things don't really matter. Just do whatever seems best to me and if it's wrong I'll just work it out later. Because everything can be balanced out later. And again, the self-involvement of concern about what if I make a mistake is more detrimental than just making a, a wrong choice, even in a major life issue, because it's just a thing. It can always be balanced out later. Uh, another element to, to sort of think about is just um, being realistic. We were talking about this at the break. You really can't win every battle. You have to become very strategic about yourself at a certain point and just realize, uh, oh, this is a, we were talking about um, Stephanie came up and she was joking but she was talking about do you mind if I, if I say it exactly she said she has a carpet that her cat has peed on and she's tried everything to make it not smell and it still smells so the question was just a real question should I learn to just live with it and I said no you should accept that you have to throw it away accept that you have to throw it away but see a lot of times we're, we're trying to accept the wrong thing we're working we're working on the wrong dimension of the problem it's a, instead of just trying well part of it is part of it is common sense and part of it is on a longer flow coming to a very calm acceptance that I have limitations and I really can't do this 
it doesn't make any difference whether this is an ideal thing. This is not my project at this point. Because if I spend all my time trying to conquer this, I'm not going to get anything else done in my life. I just need to just accept that, you know, this whole area of my life is always going to be a mess and I'm just going to work over here. You know, whether it's that I'm, I'm never going to get my diet together or I'm never going to have these particular habits or this particular thing. I, when I was in my late 30s, I just realized that really life was much shorter than I thought it was and that only a few of my uh, wrinkles were going to be worked out and I had really just better concentrate on those and pretty much forget the rest of them or else I was just going to get nothing done. I mean, it was kind of like a practical problem and it was a, very, a, certain, a certain level of self-acceptance that, you know, honey, you're just not that good. You're really not. You, me, I, all of us, we're just really not that good. So part of it is to discern when the suggestion is realistic and when the suggestion is just over the top and it's just not worth messing with at this point. You know, Swami Kriyananda is, is, is never tamasic. He's never low energy. He, low energy to him uh, is painful. I like low energy. You know? <laughs> I just do. I like just being lazy sometimes. I just am not capable of always being high energy. I don't suffer when I'm lazy. I like it. You know? <laughs> and that's just one of many differences between, between Swami Kriyananda and me. Is that he doesn't and I do. But just to be able to just say that. And so I just can't fight every battle. Sometimes you use the stick. Sometimes you use the carrot. Sometimes you just have to say it's just fine. And part of it, quite simply, is just common sense. You know, is this really going to get me anywhere to try to fight this? If, do, I have a real, do I have a real fighting chance on this one? Or am I just going to endlessly be living a life? That's, what, that's overscrupulosity. That's the Catholic thing that just makes you so nervous. Um, and, and much of the time, the thing itself doesn't matter if you just relax and just have a happy consciousness about it. Your consciousness of anxiety is much more of a problem than the thing itself. Oh, should I be doing this? Should I not be doing this? Should I be doing this? Should I not be doing this? That's why I was saying most decisions don't really make any difference. Just do it and say, well, I did the best I could. Works out, it, it does, it doesn't. Really, if it's wrong, you will find out. Another thing that I really feel have found is if you can't tell, it usually doesn't matter. Because if it really does matter, you will be able to tell. You'll either tell before or you'll tell as soon as you step into it. You say, oh, I can tell this isn't right. And you learn from that. And if you can't tell, it's, it's probably really no, of no consequence. Sharon? It seems also to me that sometimes it's not a matter of discernment because the things that I'm really supposed to work on, the line that I have so in my face that there's no, I mean, I can try to figure out a way to not deal with it, but it's just, you know, there's a certain kind of something that happens at a certain point, and I, it sounds funny when you say it, but you just quit caring what happens. You just, somehow there's a, a, like a level of self-forgetfulness. That you just kind of do the next job, and the next job, and the next job, and there's just not, you don't feel a lot of necessity to make a lot of decisions. You just kind of move through it, because you're more concerned with the flow of energy than you are with yourself in that flow. Yeah? Right. 
No, but it's fine. Meditation is not different than the donut, Marilyn. There isn't anything that is worth tearing yourself to bits about. If you're tearing yourself to bits about it, relax. Okay, now do your best. It's nice to meditate. It's nice to follow a good diet. But when, if you come up to it, you can't get yourself past it, forget it and just go on. And then the next time it comes up, you just try again. And then the next time it comes up, you try again. But once it's clear that you're not going to make it, you just go past it. Just get it out of your mind. And uh, even if, yes, of course, it's more satisfying to be doing what you ought to be doing, but you have to accept that you're not that good. You know? It's not necessarily the way you pull yourself out of that slump is not necessarily by reminding yourself what a terrible person you are. You, you just have to keep trying. I, I don't know how else to phrase it. Let me, you might, let me think how to make it clear. It's not that it's okay to not meditate, but, and it's not that you give up the thought that you're going to meditate, but you're much more likely to get back to it if you don't make a huge complex out of the fact that you haven't meditated. You, you, if you make a complex out of it, then you have, not only are you not meditating, but you have a complex because you're not meditating. You're ashamed, you don't want anyone to know, you're sure people are going to hate you, you know that God hates you, what are you going to do, how are you ever going to do it? <laughs> Instead, you just say, well, today was not my best day, maybe tomorrow will be better. Well, tomorrow was not my best day, maybe Friday will be my day. My friend Shivani, who is just the master of optimism, she would set her alarm clock for 4.30 every morning. She would get up at 6. <laughs> every night she'd set it at 4.30. Every morning she'd get up at 6. She's still, I think, doing that. You know? Maybe I misrepresent her. Sometimes her stories about my friends are, turn out to be apocryphal, not actually true. But there was a period of time when she was doing that. But it was just, you know, it was a nice idea. She couldn't live up to it. And you just have to, this is, this is the mantra that I've always used. I love this mantra. Well, he'll rephrase it differently. You need, this is one of Swami's superconscious living techniques. You need, to, you need to back up to the point where you are standing on ground that you really have confidence in about yourself. Okay, I am a person who never misses a meditation. 50 years of Kriya, I'm never going to have missed meditation. Maybe that's not such a good spot. Okay? <laughs> it's, just, it's a hard spot to stand on. The spot I have stood on for many years, after standing for a number of tormenting years on this spot, you know, just driving myself berserk, I stood over here and I said, I am really sincere. You know, I, 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 I can stand on the spot that says, this world tricks me sometimes, but not for long. I really want the spiritual life. I really do. And, and there's nothing that can tell me that that's not true, because that's true. I'm very sincere. That may not be a lot, but nobody, nothing can ever take that away from me. That's my bottom line. Everything else is extra. Right? And that doesn't mean I'm not trying to move over. You know, I'd like to stand higher up the food chain. It would be just really great if I could stand higher up. And I do. I have edged up over the years, but I've edged up a lot farther to that place over there than I was when I thought I would get there by, by stamping and demanding that I stay here. So it, it, for, that's the self-acceptance level. I Find the place where you absolutely can stand 
and then every day naturally do your best to expand it but here's it's okay because this is who I am I'm this person working to be that person and you're never going to stop trying to be that person I mean, that's a lot to be proud of and the more the more deeply you can totally integrate that the more you have all this energy to change because that's how you now think about it if you had a child and you wanted to teach that child not to knock over the milk every day at the meal when that child knocked over the milk would you scream and rail at that child for knocking over the milk one more time how dare you knock over the milk you know then the child will come to you know just with its hands shaking and as soon as it gets close it's going to knock over the milk every day it won't have a chance you would never treat the child like that you would say that's all right honey you know just just keep trying you know try to hold it like this oops that didn't work that's all right we'll just clean it up you know you're just little you'll learn and so we're standing here and we're saying I really want to meditate every single day you know and so you do for a while and then you don't and then you do <laughs> but you say to yourself that's all right honey you really you really want to and you say that to yourself I know you really want to and then you don't doubt that because you're standing on that spot I know you really want to and you're never going to give up I know you're never going to give up and then you'll find out that you'll get there right but if you if you again create this and, and you also never give up you never say oh it's fine that I don't meditate you know some people meditate I'm not one <laughs> that's not good of course you ought to meditate every day but if you don't you will does that help well I'm not sure I'm conscious that it's okay to, you know, to be gentle with yourself and all that but when should you not be are you, also, are you also saying that discernment is not important because it doesn't really matter what you choose to do as long as you're comfortable as long as you here's, here's let me phrase it like this because I think you're a little over scrupulous I think that the, the decisions are too or looming is too important in your life and as a consequence you're becoming too self I mean I don't mean to speak that directly to you but a person can become so self-involved that the issue is not what decision you make the issue is to forget the decisions it just doesn't make any difference okay. your spiritual life is not determined by those decisions okay. would be easier much easier and much of the time as I was saying if it's not clear it's because it doesn't matter because uh, <laughs> yeah. because we have so much karma to work out it doesn't really make a lot of difference we can learn it in a lot of different places we can learn it being fat we can learn it being thin we can learn it being married we can learn it being unmarried we can learn it you know when that was when some woman said to Swamiji she had this boyfriend that they just didn't get along at all they, I mean they had a horrible relationship but she was she had this like superstitious fear that he might be the one despite all common sense <laughs> and she came to Swamiji and said you know we hate each other and we're going to break up but maybe he's the one <laughs> very kindly Swami said my dear you have so much to learn you can learn it with many different people <laughs> no, 
you just haven't honed it down so that there even really is a one. Just about anybody will do until you get a lot of these fundamentals done now. <laughs> he didn't finish all those things. He, 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 he left her feeling with a little more self-respect. He finished it a little bit more after she left to me. But a lot of times that's true. And it's just our own confusion that makes us think that every little decision we make matters. Yes, yeah, Sort of, but somewhere in between. Swamiji was asked the question, how much discipline is enough discipline? And he said, that which you can do joyfully. If you've begun to think of the spiritual life as your enemy, then you're pushing too hard. Because it isn't. The spiritual life is your friend. If you think of it as your enemy, you'll have to abandon it. You don't want to spend time with your enemy. So if your spiritual life is that you can't do anything and you're always anxious, then you've got it a little screwed up. And it's better to just relax and don't sweat the small stuff and work on your heart. You know. One thing that's helped me is when I start getting, because I've done that a lot of times, I'm sort of getting really tense. I just look and I just see, you know, just disturbing my peace, and I try not to let even, you know, it's not kind of sacrilegious, it's not even, I don't try not to let even God disturb my peace. Right. You know, where I just don't, don't. It works out. In some peculiar way, it always works out. Did that answer it enough? But but I think it's uh, you're trying to answer questions to which there's no answer. You're you're asking for a divine response to a question that there is none. Do whatever you want, honey. It's fine. Just enjoy yourself. You know? <laughs> That's God's answer. <laughs> but tell me which. He says, but dear, it doesn't matter. Neither should I wear the blue dress, should I wear the red dress, should I wear the blue dress, should I wear the red dress. Just wear whichever one you want. The red one, the blue, and then which hat, which hat. You know, it doesn't matter. Just wear any of them. They all look nice on you. I mean, really, think of it like how it looks to Divine Mother. Some things matter, but not nearly as many as we think. Well, I think we've reached the end of our little time tonight. I think we've gone far enough. I didn't quite get into nirvana and suicide, but... <laughs> you can read it on your own. <laughs> I really feel, I, I feel like I haven't honored Swamiji. He was so incredibly, exceedingly pleased when he wrote that section of the book. He sent it to it from, by email. You know, Swamiji is, has in his mind these you know, long-standing debates in the world of religion and the debate over nirvana is a huge long-standing debate and he felt so pleased when he articulated it just so in that chapter. So, read it carefully and we can talk about it next week. Oh no, not next week, two weeks. Pardon me? It is good. It's very good. Two weeks then, we'll skip next week and then meet after that. Whatever the date is. Okay.